Are you looking for online courses with a Christian classical approach? Would your student benefit from small, intimate classes with personal, private feedback on their work? Circe Online Courses offer classes in classical composition and literature, logic, Latin, and loving the lovely. All classes are taught by Circe Apprenticeship trained, experienced, and dedicated classical educators. Teachers use a classical approach to instruction and weekly assessment that focuses on mastery. We never grade with machines. Instead, we focus on each child as a unique person. Above all, with a focus on cultivating the soul of the student, we are dedicated to helping you cultivate wisdom and virtue in your children. A complete list of classes can be found at Courses for Students under training at searcyinstitute.org. Sign up today for the 2023-2024 school year. And now on to this week's episode. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm here with Andrea Lipinski and Matt Bianco. And we are wrapping up the last chapter, or the last book of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Thanks for joining us. How are you guys doing today? I'm glad to be here. It's going. This is uh, this has been a fun ride. It's the last and, book. Yeah. So now all of Andrew's questions have answered. I don't know how it could have ended better than this. I love this ending. Oh, yeah. That would be fun yeah. to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Why, you guys don't look. I haven't read it yet. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I love it. Good. Then, perfect. And it's just that'll work out perfect for you to do the narration of this of this book since you ever read it. So <laughs> over to you, Andrea, for this week's narration and, and for our audience here. Ta-da! So Gilgamesh asks Utnapishtim, how is it that you've been granted eternal life? And he says, well, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the gods. So it's a long story, right? He said that um, there was once a city uh, along the Euphrates, and the a king was over it, and five gods got together and decided to send a flood on that city. And one of the five took the information, Ea, who was called the cleverest of the gods, and whispered it to a fence. The fence just happened to be Utnapishtim's fence. And he just happened to be listening when Ea told the five gods' plans. At the end of Ea just whispering to a fence, Utnapishtim says, I will obey your command. So it's just a whisper, though, right? Just to the fence. Um, that might matter later. So, um, Utnapishtim actually asks Aya, like, and I thought this was fascinating. Who, what, if I go do this, if I go build this big boat that you've told me to build to keep some people safe because of this great flood that's coming, who uh, do I say? Like, why am I building this? He doesn't ask who do I say. Why, what, how, how do I answer when people ask me why am I building this? And Aya tells him um, to, that it's based on hate. Tell him that Enlil hates you. And this is your fate. Like, this is what's happening. And so that this is what he has to do. So we're back to that word. So Lushna um, Peak team heads out and he drafts plans and he gets master craftsmen to help him. And they show up with their tools and they measure things out. And we're given, you know, gross measurements for things. Um, when all the work was finished, they feasted together um, before they boarded. 
and then uh, it all gets sealed up with oil. I thought that was interesting. Um, too much extra oil was brought on to seal the vessel. Um, and then uh, they this the hatch gets sealed and they're inside. While they're inside, I didn't I counted f- um, five gods again that um, rain down in different torrents on the earth. Um, and I thought this line was interesting that the the land was shattered like a clay pot huh. from this torrent. Um, and the people were overwhelmed like a war. Mm-hmm. And the gods were um, fearful like dogs. So like the gods sent this and yet they're even fearful. Um, so then the mother of men, another god gets mentioned, Araru, screams out like in childbirth for what's happening to her children, to all of the human, humanness. Um, so for six days and seven nights, the storms um, demolish the earth. And then the boat settles. And for six days and seven nights, they're waiting before Utnapishtim releases the first bird. I forget which kind it was. I want to say it was a dove the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. And then that one flies back because it has nowhere to land. Then he releases a second bird. And that one flies back because it has nowhere to land. And then he releases a third bird. And that one's a raven. And that one was free. So um, then they all come out. And they make sacrifices, um, and the gods gather for the sacrifices. And the um, Aroru, the, the one who was the mother of man, who had cried out for them, holds up her lapis lazuli necklace, and by this necklace promises that this isn't going to happen again. She's not going to forget what happened here. Uh, from there, it goes back and forth between the gods, of, uh, because right when Aya whispers to the reed fence, Aya tells Utnapishtim to tell the people that Enlil hates you, and so Enlil actually shows up here now and says, "What? Who did this? Who let them? Who let? Who saved somebody?" And they right away say, "Well, Aya, of course." And Aya's like, "Whoa, no, no, wait a minute." I just whispered to a fence. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I thought that was a little interesting. Um, you know, he just happened to hear. Um, and so then Aya says, that's what happened. But now you must decide what his fate will be. Utnapishtim's fate, right? Um, because Aya says it is right to punish the sinners for sin and punish criminals for crime. But be merciful and don't allow all men to die because of the sins of some. So I thought that was fascinating. So at that moment, then Enlil boards the boat and and allows, welcomes off um, Utnapishtim and his wife and tells them that they will live forever. So that's interesting that he went from just absolutely enraged, like, how could you let anybody live to, oh, and now you're going to live forever. Um, so then Gilgamesh uh, gets asked. What will you do now to show that you're worthy to live forever, right? So Utnapishtim is telling him this long story. And so he proposes that that Gilgamesh pass the first test. He has to stay awake for seven days. And I'm guessing that that's what it was like on the ship for Utnapishtim in that storm. That's just, that's me guessing. 
where he gets this test. But of course, as soon as uh, Gilgamesh like begins to sit down, <laughs> um, he's asleep. And so uh, Utnapishtim's wife says, you know, wake him up. And he's like, nah, men are liars. He's not going to believe. He's not going to even acknowledge that he was asleep. So to show him how long he slept, would you please, dear wife, build, bake a loaf of bread for every day he is asleep and we'll line them up here to show him. So they wait until there's seven loaves of bread there. And then Utnapishtim taps him on the shoulder and he awakens and says, oh, I was just about to fall asleep. Which uh, affirms that men lie. Um, and they're like, nah, sorry, man. Take a look at the bread. <laughs> the bread shows you've been asleep. And um, he's, uh, Gilgamesh is um, distraught, right? That death has caught him. And um, Utnapishtim takes him then to the boatsman who's going to carry him away um, and asks him to actually bathe him which I thought was fascinating here at the end um, to clean the mats out of his hair, to remove the animal hides from his body and to robe him in fine robes that will always look like they're brand new. And so they do. Um, uh, that's the thing he's given for his journey back home. But then he gives him one more thing. I'll give you a little, another little mystery, right? If you go down and swim down to the deep and get this certain spot, pokey plant, um, you can live forever with this certain pokey plant. And so Gilgamesh attaches stones to himself so that he can go down to the bottom and find the pokey plant. When he finds it, it pokes him. Um, he really, he cuts himself free from the stones. He jets up, um, which he probably would have ruptured his lungs or at least got the, da the, what are they called when you scuba dive and you come back too fast? The bends, but he doesn't get the bends. Don't worry. Um, and so he's got the pokey plant and uh, he lays it on the side of the water to go. And I don't remember what he goes to do, but he lays it down. I don't remember what he goes to do, but I'm thinking. Just goes, yeah, just okay. Bathe. So he goes to bathe and a reptile shows up and we think he doesn't. We, that takes the pokey plant, but leaves behind a shed of shedding of his skin as proof that he was there. Um, and Gilgamesh is now uh, completely distraught. He just sits down and weeps. He weeps again um, because, you know, he had a chance, right? And all that his hands have labored for is gone. Um, and so then he... Uh, is journeying back home and he gets to his great city of Uruk um, and he tells I, who's the they when they're traveling? The boatsman is with him still? He tells the boatsman to take it all in right? To notice these the foundations of his city and to notice the walls and to notice the size, to notice its beauty, to notice there is no city like its equal and that's where it ends it ends with a focus on the land. I think it's fascinating that we just read the story of a guy who ran full sprint for 12 hours in the pitch black. And the part of the story that bothers you is that he didn't get the bends when he went swimming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell that part of the story. I told this part of the story. So you got my interjections. You're like, this guy, he, sure, he can kill gods and the servants of gods. 
Sure, he can throw raw meat in the face of a goddess. Sure, he can wrestle wild animals and beasts. And he can travel six days in the amount of time it takes a, ma- a regular man to travel one day. Sure, he can sprint full, full steam ahead for 12 straight hours. But go diving and not get the bends. I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> not, not to mention he got to the bottom to begin with holding his breath. That, that part's fine in getting the plant. Well, I know how it's just, like it's just the rapid ascent that's the problem. The rapid ascent when you shoot up that fast, it should happen slowly. That's just funny. yeah. Well, it's too bad we had all these discussions about um, you know how much connection there was to biblical stories and imagery, and there's none in this section. It's hardly any. It's over. <laughs> it's like what happened? It's fascinating, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure they could have squeezed any more sevens into this book, into this book of the book uh, of of the epic. Because uh, obviously, you have a whole flood narrative, which is shockingly close to what you get in the in in Genesis. Yeah, I, I went back and checked to see about like the birds that are sent out. Yeah, and on the the first time Noah goes to send out a bird, he does send out. He sends out a raven. Also, the raven is the last one that goes out and comes back in this story. Right. But you just get the raven mentioned once in Genesis and it, it flies to and fro, not finding a place, but it stays kind of, it seems to kind of stay going back and forth the whole time he's testing with the doves the rest of the time. But hmm. even that was fascinating. Three times he sent birds out, similar birds. Yeah. It was crazy. Well, and it's interesting to me that this flood story comes uh, within the story of somebody seeking eternal life. Right. I just right. So if we if you just look at this book, it opens with Gilgamesh asking Unapishtim, how did you get granted? How were you granted eternal life? And it ends with him telling the boatsman, um, I like his words, right? Observe the land, the palm trees, the gardens, the orchards, the palaces, the temples, the shops, the marketplace, the houses, the public squares. Right? That that that's community attached to that land. Whereas it starts with one person wanting something for himself and he ends pointing to something else. Does it bother you that he doesn't eat from the tree right away? That he wants to test it first with somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, That was curious to me. Like, is he just, um, is it, does he not trust what he's been told by um, his, which I'm not going to get his name right. The, the peace team. Yeah. And the peace team. Um, does he not trust him? Like he wants to, it, is he still so afraid of death that he won't try the thing, but he's been told we'll give him eternal life because he wants to make sure like he wants to test it on somebody else first. He's still being ruled by this fear of death, even when he's given a way out. Well, it's weird because he tells Utnapishtim his plan. So if his plan is based yeah. on a distrust of Utnapishtim, it's weird that he tells him, right. I'm going to test this on somebody else because he all tells that him liars. <laughs> he tells him that before he leaves? Or does he tell the, or does he tell the boatsman? I was, their names are too close together. Utnapishtim is the is the eternal guy eternal one yeah and 
Urshanabi is the boatsman. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for it, Matt. He tells the boatsman, he tells the boatsman, come here, look at this marvelous plant, the antidote to the fear of death. With it returned to the youth he once had, I will take it to Uruk. I will test its power by seeing what happens when an old man eats it. If that succeeds, I'll eat some myself. Yeah. Uh, because he's already left it in the peach team at that point. Yeah. Right. He's with Ursa Nabi. I mean, I don't I mean he doesn't say he's afraid of what happened, but that's the only thing I can the only thing that makes sense to me why he would not just go ahead and take it right then, but Yeah, why does he not trust Oot and the Peach team now? I don't know. I mean, the cheap answer is, of course, is that it, he just this the author just needed something to keep him from eating the plant, but you know, just a plot device to keep it going so the snake can get it. Um, but it is weird. I mean, maybe he too thinks that all men are liars, even immortal men. Hmm. I don't know, or it's just part of his um, part of how he's lived this long. He just doesn't trust anybody. That seems so bizarre, though, with how hard he traveled to get there, right? And he 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 was marveled that Ush, that Utnapishtim was who he was, right? When he looked at him, he was surprised hmm. that that you you look normal, you right. know, you're you're eternal, you're a god, hmm. and like so that did surprise him. Maybe that's where he wasn't just going to listen to what he said. Um, I don't know. His first instinct is to fight right. the peace team. Right. And then he doesn't because he looks normal, right? Right. Or part of it because he looks normal. Looks familiar. Um, Which was his first and instinct. his first with instinct with the stone men was to crumble yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like he doesn't seem to be. He seems to be at a place in his life where depending mm -hmm. on other people is not comfortable for him. That's and then he'd rather point. just take things by force. Yeah. So I don't know. His instinct is to dominate and conquer. So the tyrant is not gone. Or the tyrant returned with the death of. With the death of the thing that originally calmed it. Yeah. It's returned full force. And the, yeah, it's interesting because he's before he gets to where he's going, he's he's more animalistic, right? But still acting like a tyrant. He's in the animal furs, he's all matted and everything. But then he gets this kind of baptism almost, right? Where they wash him and they yeah. put new oils on him, and it's it's very ritualistic, right? The new robes and everything. Yeah. Um almost like a I don't know, a new man, but then he falls, he just falls short of, of taking the actual gift of the, of the plant for whatever reason. Uh, and maybe it's that, that lack of being able to trust or let someone else be responsible for it instead, as opposed to just dominating and taking. It seems a little, so like if you're saying that the author, you know, had to put a plot twist in to keep him from eating it. I kind of wonder here at the end, it seems a little abrupt to go from such hard labor to try to gain eternity 
to have it slip through your fingers twice. Like all he had to do was stay awake. He didn't even sit down and he was asleep. Um, you know, all he had to do was eat the plant. Didn't happen. Um, even though he worked so hard to get it. And then so quickly, once it's gone, um, I guess he, he, he wept. He wept. After it was gone, he wept. And so that would be an opportunity for a cleansing there, right? Then he had an, a still another 400 miles and another 1,000 miles to go. So he's got some more labor. And when he gets home, he just revels in home. I just think that's a, you know, like quite a turn for a tyrant, for someone who's not trusting uh, for him not to get what he wanted. That he can say, look at how great this is. I think it's I think it's more um there's something a little bit more explicit than that. Thank you. The um in book ten, okay. when he first encounters Udna Peace Team, Udna Peace Team says it's page one seventy six and seventy seven. He says, Gilgamesh, why prolong your grief? Have you ever paused to compare your own blessed lot with a fool's? You were made from the flesh of both gods and humans. The gods have lavished you with their gifts as though they were your fathers and mothers. From your birth, they assigned you a throne and told you rule over men. To the fool, they gave beer dregs instead of butter, stale crusts instead of bread that is fit for gods, rags instead of magnificent garments, instead of a wild, of a wide fringed belt and old rope, and a frantic, senseless, dissatisfied mind. Mm. Can't you see how fortunate you are? You, are, you have worn yourself out through ceaseless striving. You have filled your muscles with pain and anguish. And what have you achieved but to bring yourself one day nearer to the end of your days? At night, the moon travels across the sky. The gods of heaven stay awake and watch us, unsleeping and dying. This is the way the world is established from ancient times. And then he talks about Enkidu's death, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's just that, if he's just like, oh. That's, he's just following Upna Peace Team's advice, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And he's accepting. I am fortunate. And I have worn myself out through ceaseless striving. And I've done nothing but bring myself one day closer to the end of my day. Um, yeah. Well, and if I could be so to stop us and like the very last quote in the book 10, which was right before book 11, but I did not refresh it in my mind. Um, he tells him, Utnapishim further tells him, when the gods assemble, they decide your fate. They establish both life and death for you, but the time of death, they do not reveal. Right? So if it's, is that, has he just accepted all of what you've just said? Thank you. It's interesting to me too that Utnapishim and his wife are, um, they're not in the world really anymore. Like, you know, they, they've lived all this time but as soon as they were given eternal life, they were sent to whatever this island is in the middle of nowhere, right across the across the ocean. So they don't live with the gods on the mountain. Mm -hmm. They don't live among man. They're just kind of, I don't know if exile or isolation is the right word, but they're not even that remembered other than by people like like Gilgamesh, right? Um, and and then when he got to all the way over to where he went through the passageway and everything, and so. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that, you know, that, that, that kind of eternal life or that kind of existence, it almost feels more like uh, I don't know, limbo or 
or you know um shield in the in the view of that where it's like a holding place you're just kind of there <laughs> um and and then he has this chance for something different with the plant right um which is kind of similar to what um calypso offers odysseus right i can make you young forever with me um but he usually but he would be stuck on the island also just with calypso and then one that slips through his grasp he thinks he wants that and it slips through his grasp and there's nothing left but did you what i noticed though too is that the language at the end Mm -hmm. i mean assuming that the translation is faithful and he didn't just do this to be for fun the this translator it's the exact same passage as the in the in the prologue like everything from uh see it's see it's how its ramparts gleam to i think to public squares to that very to the end it's what's in the prologue of the um of the uh mitchell version he said like um yeah so the halfway down the first page of the prologue uh actually it starts before that it's the uh this is the wall of uric which no city on earth can equal it's the exact same lines and so the part where it told us where to find the story like it tells you that same description of the yeah of the city so like yeah it, it makes you wonder like um yeah i don't know like if 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 it's in the if it's in the end of the story that the person received retrieves from that wall and they added this to the beginning of it about where to find the story i don't know but he's he his his greatness his legacy is going to be in uruk even if he dies like that's 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 the city he's that's his city right that he's king of and so um maybe maybe in a sense his his eternal glory is is more like achilles like you don't get to live forever but your name goes on right and and it did survive for a long time at least among these akkadian people groups and stuff like that in various like we know that this these come this story comes from several tablets from different places in different times and until that finally got kind of overrun by other people groups but maybe it's a similar fate to achilles I'm hearing echoes of Ecclesiastes. Okay, go on. <laughs> the um, and correct correct me anywhere along the way. I don't know it well. Um, the idea that all is vanity, and the struggle with that, and then the the reconciliation that um, the things that we do here on Earth, like you know. In some regards, we build a sandcastle, not because we think we're going to build a sandcastle and it's going to last forever, but we build a sandcastle because in the building of it, there is joy. There's building in the joy of knowing what I'm doing right now doesn't last forever. It's fun for right now. There's enjoyment in doing it together with this community or by myself or whatever this is supposed to be for this date, this time, this moment. There's a lot of life like that. Um, that's just to be an enjoyment, like a feast, right? We think about the feast that we have, whether it's a birthday dinner or a Thanksgiving feast or Christmas dinner. There is so much preparation that's put into that feast. And the actual like meal doesn't take very long. The cleanup, it takes a while as well, um, right? Like 
But what do we do it for? Be, like all of that work is worth that. Um, and so his life, right? The, the ending of the prologue says, read how Gilgamesh suffered all and accomplished all. And that was my question. Like, what does he accomplish? Like, what's all to be accomplished? If he accomplishes a reconciliation, that this is to live. Right? Eternity isn't to live, right? That's not what he was created for. That's not who he was made to be. Um, but to know who he was made to be, where he was made to be, um, and why he was made to be. Like, to answer those three questions, it's tied up in Auric for him as the king of it. Um, and to accept that. Do you think that there's something about the story of the gods, too, that brings this all together for him? Something that he doesn't recognize initially when he hears the story, I'm but something that maybe he recognizes at the end. Hmm. Because if you think about the gods, I mean, the story of the gods that Utnapishtim tells, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've talked a little bit before just in the comparison how they're their angle of understanding it is a little bit different than the Israelite one. But in his story, you know, this group of gods comes together, this group of five comes together and decides they're going to destroy, but they're going to keep it a secret from everybody else. And then, um, and then one of those gods like sneaks off and tells the secret without telling the secret Mm -hmm. or tells a secret in a way that lets them get away with telling the secret. And, um total deceit <laughs> which is you know kind of the opposite right like like god, in the biblical story god goes to noah to save him right um not from himself <laughs> right but from you know the disaster that's coming whereas in utnapishtim's story one of the gods breaks ranks and goes to save him from you know this these other gods and their decision mm-hmm. and there's like division amongst the gods um there's chaos amongst the gods mm-hmm. right and then um the i i think kind of like i didn't this didn't strike me until you said what you said andrea but um this is life and this is the kind of life he was created for but perhaps what they have is not actually life the gods like like even if he even if he were if he were to remember um What's her face's story? Uh, some um, Shamash Ishtar, Ishtar, right? Mm-hmm. Ishtar can find no lasting or permanent happiness with her lovers. Mm. They are all short lived, right? They're all dissatisfying. They mm. nothing can make her happy, mm. and um, and life for the gods is not a life of blessedness. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the shortness of his life becomes blessed because it it's the only kind of life that you can have where you can actually have a blessed life as short as it is. The 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 other kind of life, even though it's long lasting, is a life that is itself unfulfilling mm-hmm. and dissatisfying, right? And I wonder if maybe at that moment, right, when the snake takes his the tree of life from him the the <laughs> you know the initial reaction is to weep yeah. but at the end of that weeping is it is that where the joy comes like it's almost it's almost like the only thing he can do is laugh 
Yeah. You know, the, the, it's gone. And two this things, is right? Just... When we don't know how to make sense of the world. We do one of two things. We laugh or we cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He cries first and then, then, he laughs. then he laughs. But when he laughs, I mean, he, it doesn't say he laughs, but yeah. when he laughs, that opens up his eyes to be able to see the, the, the life that he has to take Udna Peace Team's advice and to go back to his city. Um, the, after I read this the first time I read, uh, you know, whatever, a year ago, two years ago, I read um, Stephen Mitchell's introduction to it. And the introduction's it's good. There's some insightful things in there. It's also some kind of like, what? You're crazy um, kind of stuff in there. But I remember, I, re- I feel like I remember something where he suggested that perhaps the the Uruk that was that he was ruling over like you remember how some of the citizens were were very bothered by how tyrannical he was ruling over them and they were complaining to the gods and that's why they send enkidu right but there's also just kind of a complacency there like this is the way it is like the guy walks past the the bar or the house or wherever where Enkidu is staying and he sees him through the window and, you know, ask him where he's going. He's like, I'm going to this wedding where, you know, Gilgamesh is going to sleep with the bride at the, you know, first. And he just describes it as this matter of fact thing, right? Like this is right. what life is. And Mitchell, I think suggests that there was a kind of prosperity in Uruk that made the people happy enough to put up with the tyranny of of Gilgamesh. Mm. And then he suggests that the description at the end, and if you couple that with the description at the beginning, mm-hmm. is describing an Uruk that is past all that. Like it's a thriving, culturally vibrant, you know, fulfilled city mm-hmm. because it's 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 um it's successful. And no longer under a, t- a tyrant, right? But it's no longer under a tyrant now because it's being ruled by somebody who's accepted death and has accepted what this way of life should look like, mm-hmm. uh, what this way of life needs to look like to be fulfilling. And so he suggests in the introduction, if I'm remembering correctly, that that the Uruk we get at the end, post Gilgamesh's journeys, mm-hmm. is a healthier, more f- fulfilling and satisfying city than the Uruk we had oh, before they were Enkidu and even after Enkidu. Yeah. With before Enkidu, they were crying out, right? Well, the of the city. yes and no. Yes and no. Some of them were. Mm, okay. That's what Mitchell's arguing is that before some were crying out because of the tyranny, but also a lot of people were just overlooking the tyranny because it was so, it was so rich, you know, such a rich yeah. city Yeah, that there was, there was a um there was a a kind of a quasi happiness right they were glad to be rich and have food and to eat but also were unhappy because of the tyranny but were afraid to do anything about the tyranny because mm-hmm. the, the wealth might go with it but at the end you get it all you get an enkidu as a, i mean you get a gilgamesh who's accepted his humanity but he had to suffer all 
And I think that's the thing, right? Like the story starts out with, you know, the animal-like man who becomes humanized by the love of a woman and then the god-like man who becomes humanized by the love of a friend. But there's still this the thing that's lacking, the restlessness that's still present is there because he doesn't he hasn't embraced death. He hasn't accepted the meaning of death. And then at the end, he's fully human because he's accepted death. Well, and that in, that makes that's interesting because of those two opening and closing passages being identical. Um, in that case, because in the beginning, it's not describing it's not describing Uruk as it is in in the beginning of Gilgamesh's reign. It's describing Uruk as it is, quote unquote, today, where you can go find the tablets and read about Gilgamesh, right? Yeah, right. It's the day of when the tablets are. So whatever. Thousands and thousands of years ago, right? But so Uruk is still standing as a city at that point. Um, But but as the thriving city, as I mean, from what I understand, like the, it was the biggest city of ancient Samaria for a long time, for several hundred years. It was the kind of the metropolis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's now thriving under some either some other king that's not part God, like Gilgamesh, just a regular king or some ruling class of some kind. Um, and it's a bustling metropolis that does, you know, there's wealth to be had because it's a merchant city and it's a trading post and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, there's an abundance, right? The, the kind of abundance that they say is going to rain down in that story about the flood. But, and so they're now living in this kind of golden era, Uruk that comes about at the end of Gilgamesh's story. When, like you said, he accepts, death and stops ruling as a tyrant and the city can just flourish because it's got benevolent leadership, you know, a benevolent ruler of some kind. Um, And so it's allowed to flourish completely. Hmm. I think, I mean, I wonder if that kind of, you you have, you have the rise and fall of these different cities and city states in the ancient world, uh, Sumerian and Babylonian and, and Greek and Roman and, and if that if they're following kind of a similar pattern, right, where there's this turmoil and oftentimes um, kind of brutal leadership or brutal military commanders to get the strong the strongman argument, right? But then they establish enough order that the city starts to thrive and experiences this kind of golden age until it until it gets conquered or falls or whatever for its resources. And so you have this repeating pattern of a pagan view of of peace right but it's not it's never completely lasting what we don't see is past the story that we get in the epic of gilgamesh when obviously uruk and the sumerian empire falls right but in the midst of the age it seems like they figured it out and we get the same kind of writings about athens and and rome and wherever right until they until they stop working <laughs> so andrea should we read it should we is, is it worth reading yeah, I'm grateful, actually. Yeah, I'm, you know, uh, Matt, you mentioned, uh, you know, comparing it uh, a bit about the gods and how um, five gods plot to destroy uh, humankind and the earth, right? The earth was destroyed like clay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
<laughs> one tricks them all, you know, get, finds a way out um, and saves some people. Uh, and our story of understanding through the Bible is that our God preserves and there was no um, division amongst, you know, right. our three in one. Um, the serpent's innocent too. Right. In the biblical story, the serpent is the deceitful one. Mm-hmm. But in this story, the serpent's innocent. He just yeah, that's grabs some he just sees something that sm- or smells something that smells good to eat. And so it just grabs it and wanders off with it. Yeah. Like like animals gonna do. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is that, interesting. That brings us back to those earlier conversations we had too, right? About stories of the ancient peoples and then however you want to view it, the corrective nature of, of Genesis, right? Of, of the tr- of it being the truth, <laughs> whether it's a, dr- a direct response or it's just the Israelites through direct uh, for, through divine revelation, their, their account. So, but it is fascinating to me that it's still a serpent that steals it. That takes, it's a serpent that takes away eternal life from Gilgamesh. <laughs> like, is yeah. the cause. And leaves a clue behind, which is kind of fascinating, right? Like, Obviously, Gil, I mean, just from a storytelling perspective, Gilgamesh can't see the snake do it because then he would chase it down. Yeah. Um, and probably destroy snake. it. Uh, but you also need to know somehow, like he needs to know, we all need to know somehow what it was that took it. Mm-hmm. Um, the story would be dissatisfying if it was just like, and then it came out and it was gone. And nobody right, knows yeah, what happened yeah. to it. Right. You know? mm-hmm. um, so then he sees the... The snakeskin. I'll see where it's uh, clues. Where was his boatsman, man? Like, come on. An eye on the eternal fruit. He couldn't. He thought he was sleeping, man. <laughs> seven loaves of bread to prove it. Man, again, though, like the seven, seven days and nights, seven days and nights, seven, like all over this, this book. And then I couldn't help but think about the apostles when he like fell asleep immediately. That when they go up on the mount with with Christ, and it's like, just stay awake. Yeah, let's see if you guys can just stay awake. Let's just try that as a test. Oh, not so much. And the the wisdom of Utnapish team to say, oh, he's gonna he's gonna think that. I mean, the conclusion that all men are liars is not necessarily believable because <laughs> I don't think Gilgamesh knew he was sleeping for seven days. Like he probably really did feel like he just fell asleep. It's not enough. It doesn't necessarily prove lying to me, but yeah. But that Utnapish team knew that Gilgamesh would deny it, and so he needed to set some sort of proof. That's just wisdom, man. That's just brilliant. Um, and his plan to 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 prove it when he first said that. Film, he yeah. was like, bake, bake a loaf of bread. And I was like, what the heck? How's that going to prove it? You could bake seven loaves of bread right now and just put it in front of him and pretend it was seven days. But then when it was like, and then there was, you know, mold and one was so hard. Stuff. Yeah, the white dust. I was like, and- oh, smart. Yeah. And these people are smart. But I also liked that Uda Peace team was very just kind of matter of fact. Like, this is the way it is. You know, if we do this test, you know, this might be able to help you out. Uh, Let's try this test. And then, well, no, we got to leave these loaves of bread because this is what he's going to do. Like, he just seemed to be, like, matter-of-fact wisdom. Yeah. But the wife had, like, a 
a compassionate wisdom. Um, Like it's the wife who says, well, wake him up, you know, come on. And it's the wife who says, really, you're going to let him come all this way and you're going to give him nothing. Let's give him something. Um, Yeah. It's interesting. The two, the, I mean, just, you know, there's a genuine distinction between the two of them, and it, but it's both, they're both, they both have a kind of wisdom that's like, we survived the greatest catastrophe to ever have struck the earth and we're immortal now. And so there's a wisdom that comes from having th- those two things be true about a person. And they both have that wisdom, but it comes out differently. You know, in the husband, it comes out as just kind of judgment. This is what... Yeah, this is what it is, and with her, it comes out as compassion. It's interesting though, though, because part of the idea there is right. There's, there was some. It's interesting that he takes into his boat with him, craftsmen and other things, artisans, uh, different than like the Noah, the Noah era, which is just a family. Um, and I think there's some. Uh, that there may have, well, there's some, I guess, speculation because theologians, I don't know about there, there was, there was knowledge that man had, he probably shouldn't have had, it was dangerous for him to have that was lost with the flood. Right. So that, that's some of what's washed away. And so it's antediluvian, is that right? Antediluvian knowledge and wisdom. And that um, some of the people groups that come after the flood that have advanced weaponry are getting it the same way by, engaging with you know gods or demons depending on your view and unholy things depending on your view um but that's not the kind of wisdom he's given here but it's the kind of wisdom gilgamesh goes seeking right it's the kind of, it's it's the kind of knowledge of gilgamesh goes seeking like how to how to get eternal life um that has been denied to man up to this point or whatever um but what he gets is some of this wisdom about how to live knowing you're going to die was, is interesting. Yeah, it is. That, that's a, a, a good point. Cause um, maybe just as a brief kind of description of it for some of our listeners um, in, you know, in the ancient world, there was like, there's belief about the, um, the gods and the antediluvian world that, they're describing so when it says that gilgamesh was two-thirds god and one-third man they literally believed that like that you know his father who was king was a god because kings are gods and his mother who was probably a temple prostitute um is uh in the course of her temple activities is um possessed by a god and so you have the God that is the king, the God that is the mother, and then the humanity of the mother. So there's two full gods and a full human coming together and creating a new one, Gilgamesh. And so he's two-thirds God and one-third man by that combination of attributes. Um, and that, But that part of the reason they did that is because when they would engage in these activities through these rituals with the temple prostitutes, they would get special knowledge from the goddess. And Uruk has that. 
Erg has that knowledge because um, it, it is the result of creating a son who is two thirds God and one third man. That's how you, that's what you do it for is to get a son like that, but also to get that knowledge. So the, so Uruk, the city is built on this kind of knowledge from, you know, his father having done that um, and then passed the city on to the son. And the, um, so there's this, it's, it's interesting because in the Epic of Gilgamesh, what you get is, you know, for them, they're, for them, they would describe it as we, we got this kind of antediluvian knowledge. Gilgamesh's father did, which gave him knowledge that made him superior to everybody around him. So he had power to build a great city and power to build a prosperous city that against, you know, his, his foes. Right. But then he also gives birth to this, you know, godlike son, this divine son who has great power, great strength and, you know, great wisdom. And yet even their God still denies something to them. Like we'll give you all the knowledge you need to, to have mm-hmm. the most powerful city, to have the most money, to have the most wealth, whatever, the most women, whatever. Right. But we're not giving you the power of eternal life. Right. Immort- immortality. In the, in the biblical world, that's, you know, they were, these pagan nations were doing this with demons, not with gods. Right. right. And so Gilgamesh is, is the, is the offspring of two thirds demon, one third man. Right. But in, from the, from the Gilgameshian perspective or the Akkadian perspective. Right. What, what he got was wisdom. And yet there was still a wisdom that was off limits. Right. From the biblical perspective, what he got was demonic knowledge that 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 may be good at some point in time, but not now. Like it's too like these people aren't aren't virtuous and mm-hmm. mature enough to have that kind of knowledge. Yeah. And so from the from the biblical biblical perspective, they're going to view not only Gilgamesh that way, but anything any other other pagan character that's got this kind of godness, right? Hercules, a uh, that kind of parentage right is going to be viewed that same way and that kind of knowledge and advanced skills and advanced weaponry or whatever it might be um but and then also from the biblical perspective if it's demons not gods the reason they're not giving the eternal life is because they can't right because they can't actually give it they don't have it to give yeah they don't have it to give right but in 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 the pagan telling, well, no, they gave it to this one, they gave it to this one guy, but they're denying it to you because, or, you know, in, in Doug Mush's case, he lost it. He lost his chances at it. Um, because it's not actually good for you. They're keeping it for you because it's not good for you. Um, so yeah, that's, but you get into who's telling the story the story and not just, the, not just the particular story of Gilgamesh or Noah or whoever, but the story of, the reality of the world and the universe as it unfolds. Yeah. So their, their gods are, are kind enough to give them this wisdom, this knowledge, right? Whereas our, our God, the biblical God withholds it. Right. You can't eat that tree. You can't eat from that tree. We'll give it to you. You just have to have to have sex with our temple prostitute. (laughs) Um, But then there's immortality that they won't give you, but then our God does give you immortality does give you access to the tree of life, right? So you just have to be yeah, and mature only, enough to get it. And only removed it when the other was violated, right? Removed yeah. to begin with. And then and then makes ultimately makes a provision for bringing him back to man. Right. In a way that doesn't condemn him. So 
this has been I'm, I'm really glad we did this one i'm not sure i would have like gone right to it if someone hadn't suggested it and matt hadn't been like yeah we should read that it was good i read it last year so yeah there's just those couple of scenes man where it's just like what why i know i, know. I, know. I have to use such explicit language but other than that honestly like the struggle that the struggles and the answers are so good i think yeah so we started off matt and you were like oh i love how this ended mm-hmm. tell me the joy you found in this ending i did i already did you didn't hear it well, was, my, was my voice not exuberant enough for you? No, no. <laughs> um, I'll sing it this time. Okay, go for it. So once upon a time, Utna Peace Team gave Gilgamesh advice, but he rejected. No, I'm not doing that. Come on. Um, <laughs> although I did feel like I was on a roll there for a second. You were. I, don't know going mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from. The muse is just That's right. Um. The, uh, I just, I think like, I think there had to be, I think there had to be something on Gilgamesh's part where he just realized that the thing that he had been so dependent on for his entire life to be successful wasn't strong enough to get him this. Like he couldn't. He couldn't beat immortality out of Utnapish team. He couldn't conquer sleep. He couldn't, um, um, you know, he couldn't conquer the snake, whatever, right? All of these things. Like, like he had to learn that he was himself human. Yeah. Frailty, thy name is human in this case, right? And and he and he learned that. And then he had to accept it. Right. And he did. And I think he accepted it. And I think there were all these signs pointing to what he needed to accept for a long time through the whole book, right? Enkidu. We should not fight Humbaba. <laughs> you know, um, all of these things telling him about his frailty and his humanity. And right. he just kept ignoring it, ignoring it, ignoring it, ignoring it. And then the the shopkeeper or the tavern keeper and um and Udna Peace team and the boatsmen and all these people telling him, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing all this? You just need to accept your lot. And he couldn't do it. And then once he finally realized his frailty, probably because he did have the bends. Um, <laughs> and once he recognized his frailty, once he recognized his humanity, he could finally accept all that advice. He could finally accept that it, what it was. And then he could go back and open his eyes and look upon the city and see how see blessed it. he was. Yeah. Mm. When he never could see it before, right? He was living in this city and all he could think about was sleeping with every woman there. Um, he was living in this city and but now he had a friend and all he could think about was going out into the world and conquering yeah. it. Right. And now finally he can look upon a city and say, this is my home and, and, and turn to someone else who has seen others. I mean, uh, yeah. Who has seen how amazing the world is and turn yeah. to that person and have the, the courage and the belief that the thing he was asking this guy to look at was worth looking at. Mm. Um, it's, it's like, it's like, um, I don't know, the, 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 
you know, the first stuff about the love of a woman humanizing the animal and the love of a friend humanizing the tyrant, you know, mm-hmm. those things I think are probably things that you can find in pagan literature generally. And, and, you know, there's probably some ways to connect that to Christianity. And then, um, you know, the idea of accepting our immortality and accepting this life and knowing that there's a, another one beyond it and, um, and being willing to endure all that this life has to offer because, it, it it is just what it is and there's you know something more beyond it um I and mean, that's all that's all very um christian okay. but that end man that's just straight wendell berry like how do you how does Place. it's just yeah it's just so um it's like all of it just tied together, like the best of the wisdom and virtue of the pagans, the best of the wisdom and the virtue of Christians, the best of the wisdom and virtue of people today. And it just all comes together and it just unfolds so perfectly at the end there in a way that is, I don't know, I just think it's satisfying. Um, I mean, obviously there's a part of the reader, probably the part of a reader who thinks, oh, I hope he gets it. Right. I hope he gets immortality. I hope he gets, you know, eternal life. Mm-hmm, right. um, but we often do that when we read a story. We want the yeah. protagonist to get what they want. Like right. that's what happens. So sure. But it's yeah. interesting, though, that like I think that like the Christian in us wants that then to get the eternal life because we're thinking about it. We think about it that spirit in the con- sense, yeah, yeah, in the context of of eternal life. Like we're gonna yeah, I'm gonna die, but then I'm gonna be resurrected and I have eternal life. But I, I noticed how many move, even modern stories don't allow the person to get that thing because it's not like that kind of eternal life where you just get to live here on earth and not die in the earth as it is, is not a set is I don't think it actually is a satisfying ending. Right. It Like I'm not envious of, uh, uh, I can never say his name. Right. The guy who has eternal life in this story. Right. But think about like, um, Think about uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Where they're going for that, looking for the cup of Christ to get eternal life, and and they got, there's that Knights Templar who's there, and he's been living, and he's old, and he's there to guard it. He's been alive this whole time, but then he's fine with it. Like once this cup is kind of lost, he's kind that that's going to end for him. He's going to die there. They don't actually get it and keep it to keep. None of them get to be eternally living in this world because that I think that would have been an unsatisfying ending. It was probably the right move by uh, who's that Spielberg Spielberg to not do that, right? Like, who wants to just have Indiana Jones living forever at the end of the story? That's not a very it's not a very satisfying story. He's, he has to learn to live in the world and and be willing to die. Same thing as Gilgamesh, um, and even. I don't remember which one it is because I don't remember all the movies and I, I'm not even sure I've seen all of them all the way through with the, the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, franchise. There's one where they're looking for the the fountain of youth here in the Americas, you know, the one that, that the Spanish were looking for and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that there's one group who knew where it was, but they don't want people to go get, like they're trying to keep people from getting it because they say, they even say in the movie, there's only one eternal life and it's through Christ. Like they're the Christian Spaniards or French, I can't remember which one, mm-hmm. that don't want people to get that kind of eternal life. They want to destroy the fountain so that people won't try to stay alive here on earth and instead of seeking eternal life through through the Christ and the church, which I thought was fascinating. They put that even in as a story, a plot line in the yeah. in a Disney movie. But mm-hmm. um because I think it's unsatisfying. 
because of that. So on that note, if I could ask a question, Matt, when you were speaking earlier, you said because of the eternal life part and how it's not satisfying on this life, mm-hmm. you said something about um, in in your joy of the end, that idea of eternity or there's, there's something else or something beyond this life. Do you think Gilgamesh represents that or were you referencing Christianity referencing that? I was talking about Christianity. I don't know. Okay. What, I don't think Gilgamesh has any sense of it. Okay. I didn't see that. And if you did, I wanted you to show it to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Yo, I just mean from what, from what we can get from it when we read the text. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm amazed at, and I shouldn't be right. If the truth is everywhere, um, I'm amazed at the amount of truth in this story. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that's where, like, I go back to my original question, like, how do we read this within um, the canon or within the uh, wanting to be to know what it means to be human? Right. If that's what Christian classical education is about, a piece of that, those four pillars, right, is to understand our humanness. Um how does this story help us all to do that? So that was my original question. Like when I asked, you know, should we even read it? Because it needs to do that. Yeah. And so yeah. To come yeah, here yeah. to the other side and to see, like I said, for me, it echoed Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Um, that the acceptance of these things that are fleeting of this life on earth are good in yeah. and of themselves. Um, we, we are I- made for these moments. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we got all the way and don't have to keep talking about. Oh, you're about to keep yeah, talking. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're welcome. No, no, because I think it's been good to think about as we've gone along. Um, because like an epic of Gilgamesh is typically not in most of our curriculum. It's not, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. part of the ancient curriculums because it was lost. All these kind of things, right? Um, and. I like. I really would like for us to revisit it in the Q and A session, session where we can have some more time to think about it and and um, kind of come back to answering that each of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially since we're kind of running up on an hour uh, now right. recording for this book. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I think that would be a really good one to to circle back on in the Q and A episode. And since you asked it in the first one, it's kind of been on our mind the whole time. So I appreciate you kind of bringing that up to begin with. That's because you keep bringing it up. If you stop bringing it up, it wouldn't be on our mind so much. Stop asking Every me. Every episode. So, should we keep bringing it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just messing around. Uh, okay. Any final thoughts from either of you before we kind of uh, sign off and then head back for the, for the Q&A next time? My final thought is that Andrea should rewatch um, Groundhog Day. Okay. Well, just to keep the connections you keep making to Ecclesiastes, watch Groundhog uh, Day. Oh, every yeah. single thing, every single day in there represents something from Ecclesiastes. That's yeah. true. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, one of those writers knew his Ecclesiastes. It's no crazy. way. Yeah. Yes. That can be a homework assignment for everybody out there. Wow. Every day is unsatisfying and every day cannot save him from the repeating of the day because it's all vanity. And then when he finally finds the thing, he's freed. It's so good. Are you yeah. kidding? No, it's one of yeah, my it's favorite really movies. Good. It's really good. I didn't know. Matt told All me right. that 
I don't know, a couple like a year or two, a couple years ago. And then we watched that for the first time with our teenagers. They had never seen it. And I was like, what? It was awesome. <laughs> it was really cool. So yeah, I'm very movie deficient. <laughs> I wrote an article about it like a bajillion years ago. It used to be on the old Classical Conversations website when oh. I was still working at Classical Conversations. Yeah. And um I don't know if it's still there or not, but yeah, I read an article about it way back. It was a February article, right? So I just wrote an article about about Feb, you know Groundhog Day movie because it was an Ecclesiastes because it was February. But I don't, I, to to February. I don't understand. Groundhog's Day. Groundhog's Day is February second, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I so celebrate that holiday. <laughs> I so know that one. You should watch that movie every year on February second. It's that good. Okay. Also, you should eat groundhog for dinner that night. I'm just kidding. Okay. Yeah. You want to push that one one step further, Matt? Keep going. Come on. You're on a roll. The muses are descending. On that note, we should we have derailed and should probably end this episode. All right, that was my final comment. Andrea, do you have any final comments? (laughs) No. (laughs) I will not be eating groundhog on February 2nd. There's my final comment. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, Thank you all for joining us this week and to discuss uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Hope you'll join us next week for the Q&A session. And please send those questions or comments to us at podcast at searchinginstitute.org or visit the searchingcircle.so space. You can leave questions and comments there. And we hope you'll check out other shows on the Searchy Podcast Network. 